2: This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
3: We'd like to note that since many of the people involved in the story are still alive, we will be using pseudonyms in order to protect their privacy.
2: Elizabeth Simmons was worried. Her next-door neighbor's infant son had been crying almost non-stop for the past two days.
3: Normally, Elizabeth didn't pay much attention to little Gregory's fussing. His mother, Suzanne Armstrong, was a single parent, but she and her housemate, Susan Bartlett, were usually able to get Gregory to quiet down quickly.
2: It was definitely not normal for Gregory to cry this much. Even more concerning was the fact that his crying had grown noticeably weaker. Elizabeth and her roommate, Janice, decided to go next door and make sure everything was all right.
4: Try again. Maybe they didn't hear you. Come on, let's check around back.
3: Elizabeth and Janice climbed over the fence that separated the two houses and looked around Armstrong and Bartlett's yard. The back door was ajar and a light was on in the kitchen.
2: A knot formed in Elizabeth's stomach as she tentatively stepped inside. Aside from Gregory's faint whimpers, the house was completely quiet. Elizabeth passed through the kitchen and peered down the dimly lit corridor that led to the front of the house. At the end, she saw Susan Bartlett lying face down by the front door.
3: Elizabeth dashed to her side, but there was nothing she could do. Bartlett was dead. She was lying in a pool of dried blood, her arms covered in deep gashes.
2: When Elizabeth turned her head, she saw Suzanne Armstrong lying dead inside one of the bedrooms. The front of Armstrong's dress was torn to shreds and had been pulled up past her breasts.
3: As Elizabeth tried to process what she was seeing, a wave of panic washed over her. She had yet to see baby Gregory and she couldn't hear his crying anymore.
2: This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy.
3: And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. This is our first episode on the 1977 murders of Suzanne Armstrong and Susan Bartlett, colloquially known as the Easy Street Murders. At ParCast,
2: we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we are doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
3: And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com slash merch For more information,
2: you can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts.
3: The January 1977 murders of 28-year-old housemates Suzanne Armstrong and Susan Bartlett sent shockwaves through the city of Melbourne, Australia.
2: At first... The murders attracted attention because of the victims' tabloid, friendly stories. They were young, beautiful women and childhood friends whose lives had been tragically cut short. And to make matters worse, a young child was left to grow up without his mother.
3: The ensuing police investigation would turn up many clues, but early mistakes might have cost investigators the resolution they so desperately sought. With the answers still missing, the case began to take on greater significance as a referendum on Australian law enforcement techniques. But in order to fully understand the foibles and flaws of the investigation, we need to understand the lives of the people involved.
2: Suzanne Armstrong and Sue Bartlett were both born in 1949 in the rural town of Benella, Australia. They met as 14-year-old high schoolers in 1963 and discovered they had much more in common than just their first names.
3: Each of them was the eldest child in a single-parent household. Sue Bartlett's mother Elaine raised Bartlett and Bartlett's younger brother, who will call Michael, on her own.
2: Details on Suzanne Armstrong's early life are scarce, But at some point during her childhood, Armstrong's father, Bill, and her mother, who we'll call Sarah, divorced. As the oldest of four children, Armstrong was largely responsible for taking care of her siblings and developed a close bond with them, particularly her younger sister, who we'll call Amanda.
3: As independent young women, both Armstrong and Bartlett epitomized the rebellious nature of the swinging 60s sue bartlett would frequently get into trouble for wearing miniskirts while suzanne armstrong was the living definition of a flower child
2: although they had different fashion tastes the two young women quickly bonded over their love of music particularly the beatles they spent many afternoons at sue bartlett's house listening to records They'd have good-natured arguments over control of the record player with Bartlett's younger brother, Michael, who preferred the Rolling Stones.
1: That's enough out of Mick Jagger, Michael. A Hard Day's Night just came out and we want to listen to it now.
5: Ugh, always with the Beatles. Can't you just stuff off for one night? You'll get to see the Beatles when they come to Australia, but the Stones aren't ever gonna come here.
4: Wait, what? The Beatles are coming to Australia?
5: How did I hear about this before you two? They're touring in Melbourne in June.
4: Oh my God! Oh my
1: God!
3: When the Beatles announced a series of concerts at Melbourne's Festival Hall in June 1964, the girls were over the moon. But there was only one problem. Melbourne was 180 kilometers from Benella, and neither of their mothers would take them.
1: I can't believe our moms are such losers.
4: I know, right? They're going to make us miss the Beatles, just because it's a little far away. I can't believe we won't get to see them. Well,
1: hold on. Just because they won't take us doesn't mean we can't go.
4: Oh, I get it. We just have to take... ourselves. Bingo. The duo
2: purchased bus tickets and took the 180 kilometer journey to Melbourne on their own.
3: We don't know if the girls had permission to go to the concert or if they went in secret. But either way, the excursion demonstrated their independent spirits and a shared appetite for adventure. After
2: graduating from high school around 1967, Suzanne Armstrong left Benella and moved to Melbourne to get a taste of city life. Sue Bartlett preferred to remain closer to her family and got a job as an arts and crafts teacher in a small town called Broadford, about halfway between Benella and Melbourne.
3: Bartlett enjoyed Broadford's tight-knit community and frequented the local theater and music scene. But when she wanted a taste of the big city, she would make trips to Melbourne to visit Armstrong.
2: Living in Melbourne expanded Armstrong's horizons. Freed from the restrictive shackles of rural vanilla, she was determined to see as much of the world as possible. In 1972, Armstrong set off on a tour of Southeast Asia, the United Kingdom, and the United States.
3: About a year into her travels, Armstrong found herself in Miami, Florida, and running out of funds. She explained her predicament to a man she had recently met at a party. He told her that he knew an easy way for her to make some quick cash.
4: All you have to do is hop on a plane to Bogota, pick up a suitcase, and bring it back here. I'm not sure. This seems like a bad idea. Come on. You want to be able to keep traveling, don't you? This will be the easiest $400 you'll ever make. And plus, you'll get to see Columbia. I have always wanted to go to South America. But what happens if I get caught? Something tells me the authorities won't be too pleased if they find me with a suitcase full of emeralds. Don't worry about that. They'd never bother stopping you. It's the guys like me they're watching out for. Okay. I'll do it. That's the spirit. I'll reserve the plane tickets for you now.
2: But when Armstrong got to Bogota, she found out the suitcase wasn't full of emeralds. It was packed with cocaine.
3: Armstrong scolded herself. She should have seen this coming. She was scared to try and smuggle the suitcase through customs, but she was also scared of what would happen to her if she returned to Florida empty handed. Her contact hadn't made any explicit threats, but she knew her life could be in jeopardy if she came back without the suitcase.
2: Armstrong took a deep breath. Her flight was boarding soon. It was now or never.
3: She made her way through the Bogota airport, drug-filled suitcase in hand. As she filed through the customs line, Armstrong noticed the officers were carefully checking everyone's luggage. Although the cocaine was hidden in the suitcase's lining, she was sure they'd be able to find it if they looked hard enough.
2: Finally, it was her turn to present her passport— Armstrong tried to flash a winning smile, but the customs official wasn't impressed. He motioned for her to hand over the suitcase.
3: As the official rifled through the suitcase's contents, Armstrong tried not to look at the false seams that concealed a fortune's worth of narcotics.
2: After what seemed like an eternity, the official snapped the suitcase shut, stamped her passport, and sent her on her way. When she was at the gate, she let out a breath. She didn't even realize she'd been holding.
3: Unfortunately, Suzanne Armstrong's problems weren't over yet.
4: Here's your stupid suitcase. Now, my money, please. Yeah, that's not happening. Are you kidding me? I almost went to jail. Welcome to the drug smuggling business, honey. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have real business to attend to.
2: Armstrong was upset but didn't push the issue. She was just happy to have gotten through the experience in one piece and didn't want to get into any more trouble.
3: After her harrowing experience, Armstrong decided it was time to return to Australia. She arrived in late 1973, excited to reunite with her best friend, Susan Bartlett.
2: Unfortunately, by the time Armstrong was back in Australia, Bartlett was out of the country. She had left her teaching job in Broadford and was taking an extended vacation in Greece before making her next career move.
3: As the two friends exchanged letters, Armstrong could tell what a great time Bartlett was having. Bartlett invited Armstrong to join her in Greece, but Armstrong was still low on funds.
2: However, Armstrong was determined to join her friend. She got a job as a taxi cab driver and started saving up for a
3: plane ticket. In August 1974, Armstrong had earned enough money to join Bartlett in Greece. They met in Athens before heading out on an adventure through the Greek islands.
2: Over the next few months, the two Sioux hopped from island to island, soaking up the sun in Aegina, Delos, Hydra, Mykonos, and Paros. When they arrived in Naxos sometime in late 1974, A handsome young fisherman, who we'll call Adrian, caught Armstrong's eye.
3: We don't know exactly how much time they spent on Naxos, but it was long enough for Armstrong and Adrian to become romantically involved.
2: In January 1975, Bartlett's vacation ended and she returned to Australia. She got her second teaching job, this time at the Collingwood Education Center in Melbourne.
3: However, Armstrong decided not to go back with her. She revealed the reason why in a letter to her younger sister, Amanda.
4: We've just been to Athens, and I've seen a doctor there, and he said I was definitely pregnant. I'm going to marry Adrian. I've decided it's the best thing to do. I know I won't lead the same sort of life I would if I was in Melbourne, but it will be a very simple life, and I hope I will have all the comforts and conveniences I want. We won't be living here forever, though. We better not, anyway.
2: Suzanne hadn't expected to get pregnant, but she clearly cared enough about Adrian to stay with him and raise the child together. Perhaps she was thinking about her own upbringing in a divorced household when she made the decision to stay in Naxos.
3: The idea of leading a simple, quiet life also seemed to appeal to Suzanne Armstrong, after all the excitement from the past few years.
2: But the real excitement in Suzanne Armstrong's life was just about to begin.
3: Coming up, Suzanne's life in Greece becomes far more complicated than she had anticipated.
0: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
3: And now, back to the story.
2: In January 1975, 26-year-olds Susan Bartlett and Suzanne Armstrong's Grecian vacation had come to an end. A new school term was about to begin, and Bartlett had accepted a job as an arts and crafts teacher at the Collingwood Education Center in Melbourne.
3: But Suzanne Armstrong was staying behind. During their stay on the island of Naxos, Armstrong had become romantically involved with a fisherman, we're calling Adrian, and was pregnant with his child. Armstrong decided to stay on in Naxos with Adrian, and they planned to get married.
2: At first, Armstrong enjoyed living the quiet, simple life that was part and parcel to small islands in the Aegean Sea, but she quickly began to chafe against the strict cultural customs she was supposed to follow when it came to her pregnancy.
3: Sometime in early 1975, she wrote a letter to her little sister Amanda to vent her growing frustrations.
4: Boy... The things I get told not to do here. You wouldn't believe it. I'm not supposed to run an inch, not supposed to sit with my legs crossed or reach up or sit cross-legged on the bed. I'm not supposed to lift up the dog or lift anything. It's really incredible.
3: Armstrong's relationship with Adrian was starting to become equally frustrating. Although they had purchased wedding rings, the rest of the wedding was proving incredibly difficult to organize.
2: It wasn't as simple as going down to the church and having a ceremony. As a foreign citizen, Armstrong needed special documents in order to marry Adrian, and navigating the maze of bureaucracy to get the documents wasn't easy.
3: With all the restrictions being placed on her by Adrian's family, Armstrong wasn't able to get a lot done by herself, and Adrian wasn't being much help. By May 1975, four months after she discovered she was pregnant, they still
4: weren't married. Were you able to go to the courthouse today?
5: I couldn't. Dmitri needed help with bringing in his catch and by the time we were done it was closed.
4: That's funny. You smell more like uzo than fish. Are you sure you weren't at the bar?
5: So what if Dmitri and I went to have a drink? Last time I checked it wasn't illegal to unwind after a long day.
4: It is when your pregnant girlfriend is waiting for you at home. I'm cooped up here 24/7. Your family won't even let me take the dog for a walk to the beach.
5: You're right. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to upset you. I promise I'll go tomorrow.
3: The blissful early days of Armstrong and Adrian's romance seemed long past.
2: While Suzanne Armstrong languished in her solitary existence on Naxos, her best friend Susan Bartlett was having the time of her life teaching in Melbourne.
3: Bartlett quickly grew to love living in Melbourne. She loved teaching in the diverse, vibrant environment of the Collingwood Education Center and was well-liked by her students and co-workers alike.
2: At the time, Bartlett was living in the hip Richmond neighborhood. Her commute to Collingwood was short and enjoyable, as she loved driving her VW
3: Bug. There were also great restaurants and plenty of concerts to attend. Sue would frequently go to one of Melbourne's many Greek restaurants— which must have made her think of Suzanne Armstrong and her struggles in Greece. We don't
2: know exactly how much they communicated during this time, but Suzanne Armstrong was a prolific letter writer. It's easy to imagine that she was probably keeping Sue Bartlett updated with the problems she was having with Adrian. In August 1975, it was finally time for Suzanne Armstrong to give birth. With the due date looming, Armstrong's mother, who we'll call Sarah, came to Naxos with Armstrong's stepfather, who we'll call Bert.
3: Sometime that month, we don't know the exact date, Armstrong gave birth to a healthy baby boy, who she named Gregory.
2: Gregory's birth helped raise Suzanne's spirits, and her family's presence helped her feel more at home. Having a newborn baby to take care of also helped heal the rift between Suzanne and Adrian.
3: But the happy circumstances were only temporary. Sarah and Bert couldn't stay forever and had to return to Australia after a couple of months.
2: Once they left in early 1976, Armstrong and Adrian began to drift apart again. Perhaps he had just been putting on a show for his girlfriend's family, or perhaps the responsibilities of fatherhood were too much for him to handle. Whatever the reason, Adrian soon became neglectful and disinterested in his girlfriend and son, leaving Armstrong to raise their son essentially on her own.
3: A place that once seemed like an island paradise, now felt like an oppressive prison.
2: Time passed excruciatingly slowly, and by the time they celebrated Gregory's first birthday in August 1976, Armstrong felt like she had been stuck on Naxos for years. Armstrong realized that this wasn't the life she wanted for her son or for herself.
3: It was a difficult choice to make. Raising Gregory on her own wasn't going to be easy. But Armstrong knew that the longer she waited, the harder it would be to leave. Sometime around September 1976, Armstrong told Adrian she wanted to take Gregory to Australia for Christmas.
5: The holidays just won't be the same without you and Gregory. Are you sure you don't want me to come?
4: We've been over this. The plane tickets are too expensive for us all to go. Gregory and I will be gone a few weeks. You'll hardly even notice we're missing.
5: Are you alright? I feel like there's something you're not telling me.
4: I'm fine, okay? Just drop it.
5: You don't sound fine. If there's something wrong, you can tell me. You know that, right?
4: Sure. Whatever you say.
5: But
3: lying to Adrian quickly became too much for Armstrong to handle. In a letter to her mother, she wrote about the struggle.
4: I know it will break his heart when I tell him I'm not coming back. But I will tell him then that the best thing for him is to come to Australia. If he makes it there, he will deserve another try. He keeps asking me if I'm coming back, and of course, I have to say yes. It's awful.
2: After a long internal struggle... She finally broke the news to Adrian in early October of 1976. We don't know how he took it, but Adrian likely didn't put up much of a fight.
3: As she looked forward to her return to Australia, Armstrong realized that she no longer desired a quiet, uneventful life. She didn't want to return to her family in the rural town of Benella. Armstrong
2: preferred the hustle and bustle of Melbourne, but with Gregory to take care of, she'd have to rely on the single mother's pension the government provided as her only income. In order to afford living in the city, she'd need a roommate.
4: Hello. Hey, Sue, it's me.
1: Sue, it's so great to hear from you. How's island life treating you?
4: Not so great, to be honest. I know this is sudden, but I need a big favor. I'm moving back to Australia with Gregory in a few weeks but I won't be able to afford to live in Melbourne on my own. Would you want to rent a house with me? Oh, of
1: course I would. It'll be just like old times. I'll start looking for a place right away.
4: You don't know how relieved I am to hear that. You're a lifesaver, you know that?
1: I know you'd do the same for me. You just worry about getting back home. I'll have everything ready when you get here.
3: Sue Bartlett was delighted that her best friend was coming home. As a teacher, she loved being around kids and was excited about the prospect of helping Armstrong raise Gregory.
2: But not everyone was as excited about the prospect of the two Sues moving in together. Bartlett's mother, Elaine, wasn't a fan of Suzanne Armstrong and thought she was a bad influence.
3: But Bartlett ignored her mother's concerns and agreed to move in with Armstrong. Bartlett found an affordable house at 147 Easy Street in the Collingwood neighborhood which had a reputation as one of the rougher areas in Melbourne.
2: During the 1930s, the effects of the American stock market crash extended to Australia, and the Collingwood neighborhood was hit particularly hard. The employment rate plummeted, forcing many of Collingwood's working-class residents to turn to crime in order to provide for their families.
3: We don't know the exact crime rates in Collingwood as compared to the rest of Melbourne, But the neighborhood's low housing prices reflected its status as an undesirable place to live in terms of environment and safety.
2: However, by the time Suzanne Armstrong and Susan Bartlett moved into the neighborhood in late October of 1976, Collingwood was finally starting to improve, largely thanks to a sizable immigrant population which was revitalizing the area.
3: Although the neighborhood was on the upswing, the rent was still cheap enough for Armstrong to afford, And it also drastically shortened Bartlett's commute to her teaching job at the Collingwood Education Center. It seemed like a win-win for both of them. For
2: Armstrong, the bustle of inner-city life was a welcome change from her monotonous existence on Naxos. The near-constant sound of the construction being done on the health center behind the house was like music to her ears.
3: Bartlett was enjoying life in Collingwood as well. With the money she was saving on rent, she was able to get them a new addition to their little family, a little shepherd-mix puppy named Mishka.
2: Once they were settled in, the two Sues introduced themselves to their new neighbors. They shared a common wall with two other single women, a journalist who we'll call Elizabeth Simmons, and a restaurant manager who we'll call Janice Arnold.
3: Armstrong was worried that their next-door neighbors wouldn't be pleased about sharing a wall with a 14-month-old infant. But Elizabeth and Janice understood the challenges Armstrong was facing and didn't complain.
2: On the other side of the house, across a small alley, an elderly woman named Gladys Coventry lived with her husband Thomas. Mrs. Coventry served as the de facto neighborhood watch as she liked to station herself by her kitchen window and observe the various goings-on around her.
3: Most of the other neighbors were similarly pleasant. Although, there were some rumors that a family of bank robbers lived somewhere in the neighborhood. But if Armstrong and Bartlett felt like the neighborhood was unsafe, they didn't show it.
2: Late October in Melbourne was a warm time of the year, as the wet spring was turning into a sweltering summer. And the two Sues would leave their windows and back door open to let in the fresh air. Their side gate was usually unlocked so the neighborhood kids could come to splash around with Gregory in their blow up pool.
3: Shortly after they moved in in 1976, Sue Bartlett started dating a young tobacco salesman whose name has never been made public. He had just purchased a new white Mercedes, which stood out like a sore thumb when he parked it in front of their house.
2: Perhaps inspired by her friend's budding romance, Armstrong decided she was ready to begin dating as well. Adrian was firmly in the rearview mirror, and Armstrong was prepared to let someone new into her life.
3: Armstrong's sister Amanda offered to set her up with her boyfriend's brother, a 30 year old sheep shearer who will call Carl. They had met once or twice, and Suzanne thought they had a good rapport. Apparently, he agreed and called her up on Christmas Day of 1976 to set up a date.
2: Things were looking up for the two Sus. As the new year beckoned, it seemed like their lives were full of endless possibilities.
3: But Within the next two weeks, they'd both face an unexpected end.
2: Coming up, we'll tell the story of Suzanne Armstrong and Sue Bartlett's last days.
3: And now, back to the story.
2: In late October of 1976, 28-year-old friends Suzanne Armstrong and Sue Bartlett moved into a small three-bedroom house at 147 Easy Street in Melbourne's Collingwood neighborhood.
3: Both women agreed that the move had been a great decision. After Armstrong's sudden return from Greece, she was getting back on her feet faster than she could have ever anticipated.
2: Sue Bartlett was a big reason for that. She had agreed to move in with Armstrong without hesitation, and it was proving to be a huge help in taking care of Armstrong's infant son,
3: who we're calling Gregory. Bartlett's help even extended to Armstrong's dating life, as Bartlett would watch Gregory while Armstrong went out on the town. This included a date she went on with a 30-year-old sheep shearer who we're calling Carl Brandenburg during the last weekend of 1976.
2: Carl took Suzanne Armstrong to see a rodeo near the town of Bendigo, about 150 kilometers north of Melbourne.
3: Before heading back, they stopped by the local pub for a few drinks, then drove back to Melbourne. The date was a huge success, and they made plans to see each other again very soon.
2: A few days later, Armstrong went on another date with Carl, We don't know what they did, although we do know that Armstrong brought little Gregory along with her.
3: Carl didn't seem to mind at all. He was absolutely smitten with Armstrong, and the feeling was apparently mutual. In a later interview, Carl claimed that the two of them discussed the idea of getting married in the near future.
2: Later that week, on Sunday, January 9, 1977, Carl brought Armstrong and Gregory over to his sister's house for a late afternoon lunch. After they ate... They carried the TV into the backyard and enjoyed the early summer weather as evening approached.
3: Carl took Armstrong and her son home around midnight.
2: Armstrong smiled when she saw the white Mercedes belonging to Sue Bartlett's new boyfriend parked out front. She was excited to introduce Carl to her best friend. As they walked inside, they passed the young salesman on his way out and exchanged a cursory greeting.
3: While Suzanne went to put Gregory to bed, Carl sat down for a cup of tea
5: with Bartlett.
1: So, I hear things are getting pretty serious between you and Suzanne.
5: Well, it's still early.
1: She says there's been talk of marriage. I'd say that's pretty serious.
5: You're right, I just don't want to jinx it. She's so amazing and, well, I'd hate to do anything to lose her.
1: Listen, Carl, you seem like a great guy. Judging from everything Suze has said about you, she certainly thinks so. But she just got out of a very complicated situation i'm not trying to scare you off but be careful with her she's my best friend and i don't want to see her get hurt again
5: i wouldn't dream of it i know we've only been on a couple of dates but i've fallen for her i would never do anything to hurt her
1: good because if you do
4: what are you two gabbing about you look so serious
1: oh nothing much just getting to know each other a bit Anyway, it's getting late, and I think I'll go to bed. It was very
4: nice meeting you, Carl.
5: Yes, same to you.
4: I hope she didn't scare you too much. She can get very intense sometimes.
5: Yes, she seems quite protective. Anyway, it's getting late. I'll call you tomorrow? Sounds great.
3: The two of them made plans to see each other later in the week. Armstrong couldn't believe how lucky she was to have met a guy like Carl. He was kind, gentle, and had taken an interest in her son. He seemed like the total package.
2: And despite her stern warning, Bartlett didn't disagree. The next day, the morning of January 10th, 1977, she woke up early to go shopping with her mother. Although Elaine Bartlett had disagreed with her daughter's decision to move in with Armstrong, they still enjoyed a close relationship.
3: Perhaps Elaine was feeling a bit guilty about criticizing her daughter, because the two of them went shopping at the upscale Gregory's Department Store in downtown Melbourne. They even had lunch at the store's restaurant, which was a very big deal at the time.
2: That night, Susan Bartlett invited her younger brother, who we'll call Michael, over for dinner. Although the two siblings were incredibly close, Bartlett did have an ulterior motive for the home-cooked meal. She wanted Michael to fix her stereo.
3: But Michael was happy to help. He was an avid tinkerer and never turned down an opportunity to spend some quality time with his sister.
2: Michael arrived around 7 p.m. and stayed for a couple of hours. He left around 9 p.m., just as the two Sus were settling onto the couch to watch a popular TV show called The Sullivans.
3: Before Michael headed out, he and his sister made plans to see each other again for dinner in about a week. But as he closed the front door behind him michael had no idea that it was the last time he'd ever see his sister alive
2: that same night the sue's next door neighbor elizabeth simmons went out with her co-worker who we'll call james garland james was a rough sort He was a crime reporter whose Rolodex had just as many criminals in it as police officials. He was also known to be a heavy drinker.
3: Elizabeth's co-workers tended to avoid spending time with James because he was connected to the 1975 disappearance of a young librarian named Julianne Garcia-Salai. Although he hadn't been accused of causing her disappearance, James was one of the last people to see Julie alive and was labeled as a person of interest in the ongoing case.
2: But Elizabeth had an affinity for James. She thought he was a nice guy who had just been in the wrong place at the wrong time.
3: On the night of January 10, 1977, Elizabeth and James had a few drinks at Melbourne Celtic Club before returning to her house at 149 Easy Street around 8.15 p.m. They continued drinking and playing pool until midnight when Elizabeth's roommate, Janice, got home from work.
2: The three of them stayed up until about 2 a.m. Given the late hour and copious amounts of alcohol they had drunk, Elizabeth made a bed on the couch for James to sleep on before she went to her room and passed out.
3: On the morning of January 11th, Elizabeth woke up around 8 a.m. with a nasty hangover. She could hear little Gregory crying next door, but knew his mother would quiet him down quickly. James was already up and dressed, and Elizabeth drove him home.
2: When she got back to Easy Street, Janice asked Elizabeth if the two Sues owned a puppy. She had seen a dog running loose on the street and was pretty sure it belonged to their next door neighbors.
3: Elizabeth went back outside and saw the dog sniffing around some bushes. She realized it was the Sue's puppy, Mishka. The dog recognized her and came to Elizabeth when she called it. She gathered Mishka in her arms and went next door.
2: She knocked on the door, but there was no answer. Elizabeth shrugged and brought Mishka home with her. She was sure one of the two Sue's would be along shortly to pick her up.
3: But when Elizabeth got home that night from a dinner with some friends, the dog was still there. Janice told her that she had tried getting in touch with the Sus, but had been unsuccessful.
2: Although Elizabeth loved dogs, she had no desire to take care of Mishka any longer than she had to. She went into the backyard and peered over the fence.
4: Can you see anything? It looks like the
1: back door is open. I can see a light on in the kitchen, too. Hello?
4: Suez? We have your dog! I haven't heard Gregory crying since I got home. Maybe they went out for the day or something. Let's just leave them a note. Good idea. Dear Sus,
1: we have your dog which was wandering around the street. You are obviously not home. So give us a yell and we will return Mishka to you promptly. Regards, Elizabeth
4: and Janice.
3: The next day, January 12th, Elizabeth hurried off to work without checking to see if the note was still there. When she got home that night, it was. She was concerned but also exhausted from a long day. She'd try and get in touch with her neighbors again in the morning.
2: Janice got home a little while later. She checked the backyard and the light was still on in the Sue's kitchen. She also thought she could hear Gregory faintly crying through the wall but wasn't sure.
3: The next day, the morning of January 13, 1977, Elizabeth and Janice finally decided to take action. They had definitely heard Gregory crying through the wall and they were extremely worried about his safety.
2: After knocking several times on the Sue's door with no response, they decided to more thoroughly investigate. Elizabeth got a chair and climbed over the fence separating the two houses, with Janice following closely behind.
3: When Elizabeth stepped through the open back door, she was overcome with a deep sense of dread. Aside from the light in the kitchen, there were no lights on in the house.
2: As Elizabeth crept down the darkened hallway, she saw what looked like someone lying down by the front door.
3: (coughs) It was Sue Bartlett, lying in a dried pool of blood. It seemed like she had been there for a long time. Her bare feet had turned black from a lack of blood flow.
2: Elizabeth turned her head and saw Suzanne Armstrong lying dead in her bedroom. She could see that someone had hiked up Suzanne's nightgown.
3: Janice ran home to call the police while Elizabeth went to check on Gregory. To her great relief, the little boy was still alive.
2: while she waited for the police to arrive, Elizabeth tried to reassure Gregory as best she could. As she looked into his eyes, Elizabeth shuddered at the thought of the horrible deeds that had been committed while Gregory lay in his crib.
3: She couldn't believe that neither she nor Janice had heard anything. How could a pair of such gruesome murders have happened so silently?
2: Elizabeth felt horrible that she hadn't gone to check on Gregory sooner, but she was relieved that he had escaped the horrifying fate that his mother and her friend had suffered. She just hoped that their killer would be brought to justice soon.
3: Unfortunately, conflicting witness statements, poor police interactions with eyewitnesses, and plentiful red herrings would mean that solving the case was going to be much more complicated than anyone could have anticipated.
2: Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with Part 2 of the Easy Street Murders as we examine the confounding investigation into the deaths of Suzanne Armstrong and Sue Bartlett.
3: You can find more episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Well,
2: several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review.
3: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
2: We'll see you next time.
3: If we live till next time.
2: Unsolved Murder's True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Kenny Hobbs. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Maggie Edmire, and Freddie Beckley. Unsolved Murders is written by Alex Benedin and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, in alphabetical order, Jerry Courtney Osteen, Mike Capozzi, Sarah Carroll, Susanna Corrington, Sky King, Kathleen Nielsen, and Maneeb Raymond.